Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Quebec's Bill 21, the religious symbols ban, is being debated today. Some parents want to uphold the ban in order to shield their children from being exposed to the hijab. Mustafa Farouk of the National Council for Canadian Muslim joins us to talk about that. Donald Trump has not conceded the election yet, but Attorney General Bill Barr has decided to okay probes into election fraud, despite the fact that there's a lack of evidence. We'll talk about that. How's phase two of the Ontario MAID program going? Well, we'll talk with the Economic Development Minister for the province to get an update. And if case numbers continue to rise, the Hamilton Board of Education is warning parents to be prepared for school closures. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's uh, called the Religious Symbols Ban. It's uh, Quebec Bill 21, and it's uh, having having hearings right now in Quebec uh, Superior Court. Uh, several parents have pleaded with the Quebec Superior Court judge uh, yesterday to uphold the province's religious symbols ban in order to shield their children from being exposed to the hijab, which they believe conveys a pernicious sexist message. That was just one of the points of view in a very, very emotional day in uh, the Quebec courtroom. So where is this going and uh, what's the, the ultimate decision going to be? Pleased to welcome to the program Mustafa Farouk, who is the Chief Executive Officer with the National Council for Canadian Muslims. Mustafa, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me. As you saw the, uh, the, the transcripts and, and the reporting on uh, the trial yesterday, uh, what was your reaction to it? Uh, I mean, I think the reality is that, uh, you know, Bill 21 circumscribes uh, what people can wear, how people look, and what freedom they have to dream the dreams of what kind of profession they want to take on. In other words, um, you know, if you have the unmitigated temerity to be Jewish and to wear a kippah under Bill 21, you're not allowed to become a teacher. You're not allowed to become a police officer. You're not allowed to become a prosecutor. Uh, while I don't want to directly comment on the submissions made by the parents, what I would say in general is that uh, if we're looking and thinking about choice, if we're looking and we're thinking about impact, if we're looking and thinking about freedom, it's very clear that those uh, people who have had to lose their jobs, people who have had to leave the province of Quebec, like Amrit Kaur, a young Sikh teacher who grew up and spent her entire life in Quebec and has been forced to relocate to British Columbia just because she was you know, being asked to choose between who she was as a Sikh woman uh, or the profession that she loves and the province that she loves. Uh, these are terrible choices that no Canadian should ever have to make. A number of the comments, and, and again, you're right, I don't want to get too deeply into some of the, the, the stuff that was mentioned yesterday in court, but I think it does uh, go to the to the mindset that an awful lot of people have here, because uh, we hear words like pernicious and proselytizing uh, that, and suggesting that uh, that women were actually, if if not physically being forced to, to wear the hijab, that, uh, that, that from a, a societal standpoint, they felt uh, as if they had to do that. That was the mindset. I'm not suggesting it's right or wrong. Uh, but it was rather remarkable to hear so many people with such strong views on that, especially on that side of it. Uh, I think it's what I think what's remarkable is the Orientalist assumptions that go into assuming that uh, you know women lack choice in Canada, uh, that people could somehow the only way that they could be religious is by force. Uh, now, of course, if there was somebody who was being forced to wear a hijab or to wear a kippah or to wear a turban or to wear a cross, that's disgusting and disturbing. But the reality is that if you go in the city of Hamilton today, you know, ask somebody who you see wearing a religious symbol or religious clothing, whether they're being forced to, I think you'll get the answer for yourself. Um, but the reality is that what's, what's really at force here, what's really about compulsion here, is the arm of the state in Quebec reaching down and telling Jews, Muslims, Sikhs what they can and can't do. Um, and in a, for a province that refuses to acknowledge systemic racism, uh, as Quebec has, um, to also then you know, be speaking out of the side of their mouth um, in pushing Bill 21, this piece of legislation that circumscribes a different set of opportunities for racialized communities, uh, it's very clear what side choice lies on. So is it your assertion then that, uh, notwithstanding the testimony that we heard from people yesterday about this, some pro, some con uh, to, to the bill itself, 
that it really should be the, the province of Quebec that's, that's on trial here for passing legislation like this and forcing it upon people. Uh, I think that's absolutely what, what's at stake here. The question is, is it okay for a government to uh, say to a Jewish Quebecer um, in 2020 that you are a kippa, um, therefore we think that's, you know, that's wrong, that that somehow breaches a duty of neutrality, and therefore you can't become a, a prosecutor, you can't become a police officer, you can't become a teacher. Um, I think every, you know, the vast, vast majority of Canadians uh, can agree that that's ridiculous and that's stupid and that we can't imagine to be having this conversation in 2020. Yet there is the law, and, and your your point's well taken. I mean, you know, you, you can walk down King Street in Hamilton or Richmond Street in London or, or Young Street in Toronto, uh, and you can be a teacher at any one of those uh, locations I've just mentioned. And you, can wear, you want to wear a hijab, you can wear a hijab. You don't, you don't. Uh, but Quebec seems to take a much different point of view on this. And is, is it your contention that, that, that it, it's the systemic racism that seems to, to permeate uh, so much of what's going on right now that uh, that is actually the basis for, for, for passing a law like this? Well, I, I don't think that we can ignore xenophobia, uh, that we can ignore the fear of the other, the fear of a, of a man in a turban, the fear of a man in a kippah, the fear of a woman in a hijab uh, as a major animating reason. But we also have to recognize that the province of Quebec has uh, very systematically framed this as a conversation about neutrality. That, oh, you know, when you go to school, your kids should be, um, you know, uh, educated in a, a classroom that has a neutral person. Or when you go and you interact with a police officer, um, that, you know, there should be no uh, guise of religiosity guiding that interaction. Uh, but the reality, and I think this is something that folks in Hamilton just know, and folks in Canada just know, is that, uh, you know, what you look like, who you are, um, that has nothing to do with the question of neutrality. Uh, are really, we know that a neutral state doesn't discriminate. Uh, and that's what's at stake here in our Bill 21 challenge. But if, if that's the stated goal or the intended goal of this legislation, especially, as you say, from the educational environment standpoint, what's going on in the classroom, is, isn't that tantamount to sanitizing what's going on there as opposed to looking at what we are, the reality is, that, that, that there are Jews, there are Muslims, there are you know, people of different religious uh, uh, faiths that, that are attending those schools, and, and why pretend that they're not you know, what they are? Uh, that's a really good question, and I think that those are the kinds of key questions that we're asking uh, and that's at play here. Um, it's exactly why in, you know, over the last week we've heard testimony from teachers of a variety of different kinds of backgrounds telling about how they've lost their jobs. They're not able to work in the places that they wanted to work, uh, that they're scrounging to find a solution. This is, by the way, in the midst of, uh, you know, Quebec in the midst of its COVID crisis, mm -hmm. literally pulling kids out of school, uh, out of, you know, young people out of university to go directly onto the front lines uh, as educators. But just because somebody happens to be from a particular minority group, uh, whether you're Muslim or Sikh, and you uh, look a certain way, uh, you know, you're being forced to stay on the sidelines. <sighs> There's a sense of deja vu, Mustafa, as I talked to you about this today, and because I, I, I can remember doing shows way back when about uh, a, a couple of people remember that were Maoris and wanted to wear their turbans uh, and kirpas, and and there was such a huge outcry, like that's not Canadian, you know, this is, and on and on it went. Uh, I thought we were over that. I thought so too. I, you, you know, you think it's 2020 that uh, we have, you know, in sitting in our parliament. People with all kinds of, you know, backgrounds. We have people who are Jewish. We have people who are Muslim. We have people who are Sikh. We have people who are Black. We have people from uh, all kinds of minority communities. And that's something that we think that we celebrate, uh, that we admire, that we think that's, that separates out us as Canadians, that we defend when we think about Remembrance Day. Uh, that idea of our diverse and beautiful community that makes us Canada uh, that makes Quebec uh, a unique society. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not the way that uh, the CAC government has seen this province. Uh, it's not the way that it's treating the thousands of Quebecers who disagree strongly uh, with Bill 21. Uh, and that's why we're in court to fight it. It's 
interesting and noteworthy, I suppose, that uh, I was just watching some of the government announcements over the last couple of days. Uh, and two, if not three, I guess, ministers in the federal cabinet uh, wear turbans. Uh, and, and one of the, I mean, one's the defense minister. We could just as easily be the, the uh, you know, the, the attorney general. But he wouldn't, he's not allowed to be a cop in Quebec, apparently. Uh, it just, it sounds bizarre. Yes. Well, you know, and, and also there are certain positions within the National Assembly that those ministers at a federal level wouldn't be allowed to have. Um, I think we would all say that it would be insane to, to suggest that one of our federal ministers or, you know, for that matter, folks in the Conservative Party who are a turban or religious symbols uh, are not neutral. We would all decry that simultaneously as unacceptable um, in Canada. And yet we have a government that has legislated that in Canada. And that's why I think it's incumbent on every Canadian, uh, on every Quebecer to stand up uh, and to say very clearly that this is not acceptable in our Canada. There is one point that was brought up yesterday that I would like to get your comment on, the Mustafa. Uh, a teacher who wears a hijab uh, said, it sent, and again, she was suggesting it sends subtle messages to children. Uh, he called the hijab a symbol of Islamist proselytizing uh, and, and pernicious because of that. Uh, the, the concept here seems to be that if, if you're wearing a hijab or if you're wearing a, a yarmulke or if you're wearing a crucifix, that you're somehow trying to, to win people over to your religion and your faith, which I found a, a bizarre assumption, to be, to be frank. Yeah, I, I, think, I think we would all agree that that's, uh, you know, I think that's about as ridiculous as saying that, you know, when you put up a Christmas tree outside your house that you're trying to convince everyone to become Christian uh, when they walk past your door. Uh, you know, or a religious symbol that's, you know, there doesn't necessarily mean you're trying to convert anyone. Uh, just as we know that, um, you know, the, the the Quebec flag has the fleur de lis on it, uh, an obliquely Christian symbol um, with deep history in Catholicism. But no one looks at the Quebec flag being put outside of school and thinks, oh, we're trying to convert everyone to become Catholic, uh, which would be absurd, to be to be clear. Where do you see this going? And because I've seen surveys uh, from Quebec that indicate that the majority of people seem to favor the bill. Uh, I'm hearing a lot of, of, of contrary voices and contrary points of view on this now. Uh, it is before the courts, uh, and of course, this is Quebec, and I, I know people would say, well, ultimately, this should go to the Supreme Court, and there's got to be some decision about this, but we're getting into constitutional issues with this as well. But uh, is, is this just a, a, a show here they're putting on because the bill's going to stay where it is, or do you feel there's obviously a chance uh, that the court may actually rule against the province here? Well, again, um, what, what I'll say is that we, you know, we at the National Council of Canadian Muslims, along with uh, many other groups, including the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, uh, we have, are, you know, are making our case in court. Uh, we believe we have strong submissions uh, because we believe in a sense of constitutionalism. We believe that the rule of law means that every Canadian should have access to equal opportunity. Uh, and we believe firmly that at the end of the day, uh, you know, notwithstanding whatever court decision happens, we know that Quebecers, just like every Canadian, are good people who will come to and make the right decision. Uh, you know, and, and we can see that in the polling around Bill 21. Uh, when Bill 21 was first passed, support for it, uh, you know, was, was, was around 70%, and now that's dipped below 50%. Um, and so we can see that, you know, although there's still a large segment of Quebecers who uh, you know, have been listening to the government um, in terms of this being about neutrality versus what it's really about. Uh, we know that the tide is shifting and changing, and that's because of Canadians. It's because of things like the Ontario legislature unanimously passing a motion condemning Bill 21. Uh, and that's what we need to see more of. Uh, we need to see more and more folks, more and more average Canadians, uh, more and more folks in Hamilton standing up very clearly to say, uh, my neighbor is my neighbor and I am my neighbor's keeper. Does it bother you that federal politicians, and frankly, notwithstanding what happened in Ontario, and I'm glad they did pass that law, or that, that bill uh, condemning 21, Bill 21, that federal politicians, especially around election times, tend to dance around this issue? Uh, we have been very clear that we, we think all federal politicians need to do a better job in terms of clearly stating not only their opposition to Bill 21, but to also clearly noting what they're going to do about Bill 21. 
the simple matter is that you can't talk about religious freedom, you can't talk about systemic racism, you can't talk about xenophobia, diversity, inclusion, and equity in Canada, and not be dealing with the fact that, you know, one of the two uh, largest provinces in Canada um, has systemic racism baked into one of its pieces of legislation. Is there an admission to that? Are we there yet, or are we whistling past the graveyard and pretending it doesn't exist? Uh, I, I mean, I will note that all, like the Prime Minister, has condemned Bill Twenty One. Yes, he has. Yeah. Uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole has said that he's uh, personally opposed to Bill Twenty One. Uh, Jagmeet Singh has, of course, also repeatedly condemned Bill Twenty One. But I think while we need, we, we a need, we need courage from all um, from all our political leaders to say very clearly that this bill, and, and at every press conference, when they're talking about things like systemic racism, when they're talking about the impacts of COVID on racialized minorities, when they're talking about the impact of the lack of education that our young people are experiencing right now, and the different kinds of future that we're thinking about for our, for our nation in these dark and troubling times, that they must also be standing up and saying what they're doing about Bill 21. You know, I can't help it. I'm trying to, I, I was going to say the word rationalize. I don't know if there's any rationalization for this, but the the the, the, rash, the, the justification for this and the motivation for for this kind of legislation. And I, I can't help but wondering, Mustafa, if, if what they're really doing is mimicking some of the, 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 the radical views and some of the, the, the racial views that we see in France these days about uh, about immigrants uh, and Muslims and, and others that uh, that seem to be victimized by the same sorts of attitudes. I mean, first of all, I think, you know, first and foremost, what, what happened in France about the Charlie Hebdo cartoons was, was abhorrent. It was disgusting. Yes, it was. Um, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think what we need to realize is that we in Canada, we're not France. Uh, we, don't, we're, we don't have the same kinds of problems that are in France. Uh, and it's wrong for the Quebec government to be drawing on the same kinds of policies uh, the dangerous policy of laïcité, secularism, or like a kind of radical uh, conceptualization of secularism, um, which just doesn't make sense in our Canadian context. Well, uh, not just Canada, but the world is watching to see what's going to be happening with this uh, legislation Absolutely. in this courtroom. Mustafa, thank you so much for uh, taking some time for us today. I uh, uh, certainly would like to stay in touch with you and get some re reaction uh, when we get further down the line with, with the uh, legal wranglings that are going on. But thank you so much for today. No, absolutely. Thank you so much. Eh? Take care. Mustafa Farouk, of course, Chief Executive Officer with the National Council for Canadian Muslims, as the... Uh, Arguments about Bill 21 in Quebec continue in that courtroom today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Joe Biden, of course, is the president-elect, uh, but uh, not in Donald Trump's mind. The tweet he put out a couple of days ago basically said, uh, if you only count the legal votes, I won. Bigly, I guess he meant, too. Uh, anyway, it's starting to get very muddled, uh, and the clock is ticking about transition times. Uh, Sagar Morgani's got this update. As Biden sought to unify the nation's response to the coronavirus pandemic, this election is over. The president continued refusing to concede the race, mounting legal challenges, and getting backing from the man many in the GOP see as the one who may eventually need to nudge him out the door, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. President Trump is 100% within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities. In the meantime, White House officials and Trump political appointees told career government staffers they are not to start acting on transition planning to Biden until the General Services Administration approves it, keeping Biden from access to federal agencies. Sagar Magani, Washington. And on it goes. And uh, it's, it's getting to be very, very muddled here. And, of course, we kind of figured this was going to end up in the courts in some way, shape, or form. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Elliot, good morning. How are you today? Uh, good morning, Bill. Well, I, I think I'm getting a little more sleep. But, uh, <laughs> yes, the, the saga continues in the U.S. Well, let me ask you about that. I, I watched McConnell's speech, his first speech uh, in the Senate since the election, of course, uh, and said that Donald Trump is 100% within his rights to do this and to check out uh, allegations of electoral problems. There are no allegations, Elliot. Um, you can... I mean, I've seen delegate. stuff on social media, but, you know, <laughs> yes. I've, seen, I've, I've seen things on social media, people, you know, there are truckloads of Biden ballots that just appear. I mean, that's all crap. We all know that. Yes. There, there were 
observers in every one of those polling stations, Republican observers and Democratic observers, uh, and, and, and Trump doesn't seem to, to want to admit that, even though the, the White House lawyers have been to that in court last week. Well, keep in mind that he's had a, a strategy for a very long time, and we've talked about it. His uh, plan A is to win the Electoral College, not necessarily the popular vote, but the Electoral College, as he did last time. And he made a, uh, a good go of it. He, uh, he, his rallies really did turn out substantial number of votes. Apparently, five million people who didn't vote the last time for him did this time, uh, new voters. So uh, he, he hoped to win, but he did not win in the Electoral College. Uh, if, if the states where Biden is leading, uh, he continues to lead, and the people who monitor this carefully did, as you say, call it on Saturday, saying that the lead is big enough now in Pennsylvania, which would give him enough Electoral College votes to go over the top. But uh, uh, Plan B is all along, and he's announced it uh, well in advance, that he wanted his people to show up on the day of the election. The Democrats were saying, no, uh, it's too dangerous in COVID times. Vote in advance. Uh, do advanced polling. Mail in your ballots. And Donald Trump made it clear that he was going to try to get those declared invalid. Uh, and he had some luck with it in terms of Pennsylvania. So it does come down to two things now, I think. One is, will there be enough votes uh, in those states where Biden is leading, in particularly Georgia, to not need Pennsylvania at all in the Electoral College? Or conversely, will there be a wide enough gap in Pennsylvania for Biden that it becomes impossible for anybody to say that no matter how you interpret the law, uh, Biden would lose Pennsylvania. Either of those options would work to, um, to eliminate any, any avenue of a faint hope or a Hail Mary or the kind of strategy that well in advance, again, Donald Trump had planned. So we'll have to, I think, uh, keep an eye on Georgia, where it's going to an automatic recount. Uh, it's highly likely that Biden, after a recount, will carry Georgia which means he will end in Arizona, uh, where, where uh, Trump is gaining and gaining. It may go to a recount there, but unlikely. So assuming those click in, you don't need Pennsylvania, or Pennsylvania's total just keeps going up for Trump. But until that time, his strategy of getting it to the Supreme Court does remain a faint hope, viable strategy in his mind, and he's acting, as you just heard, to say, I'm not going to permit a transition in any sense to go forward because I think I'm going to win. Let me ask you, I, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't want to get too deep into the legal weeds here, uh, but it has not dawned on anybody that he's complaining about these, uh, these mail-in ballots. Uh, but the count is going on in South Carolina right now. The count is going on in Arizona right now. The count is going on in Alaska right now. Those are mail-in ballots, Elliot, for Donald Trump. Uh, he's not complaining about those. Those are fine. It's the mail-in yes. ballots for Joe Biden he doesn't like. Yes. Um, it's quite ironic to take pictures from Arizona of Trump supporters saying, count the vote, <laughs> and in Pennsylvania, Trump supporters saying, stop the count. So, uh, but logical consistency isn't the issue here. The, the issue is power in America, and does he still have an avenue? And in his mind, he does. And indeed, if this uh, the, the strongest case appears to, to be in Pennsylvania, where... Uh, prior to the uh, election, there was already a case before the Supreme Court, and uh, it was still there. They said, no, Pennsylvania can go ahead, but you've got to sequester those votes that come in to be counted. Remember, each state sets its own rules, and Pennsylvania said, if, as long as it's postmarked by Election Day, we'll count it. And, uh, and Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh and Alito have both made statements suggesting yeah, if this comes before us, uh, we, we, we still, you know, uh, and we know that he rushed to get his appointee, uh, Amy Coleman Barrett, on the court, and he says she had better come through for me. So in his mind, he's got the votes on the court, and the question uh, is, in his mind, can I get it to that? And right now, they are trying very seriously to do so, and there's some additional steps they've just taken to get it to the Supreme Court. But but they have to prove something here, do they not? They just can't, you can't just, I, and again, I, I, 
I just basing this on, on some of the other legal opinions that I've heard from the various uh, coverages that I've watched over the last week or so, Elliot. Uh, you can't just make an accusation. You have to show proof. And, 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 and some of, you know, Trump's former allies, I mean, guys like Chris Christie and, and others, uh, have said, if you got something, show us something. And, and not the yeah. crazy stuff that Rudy Giuliani's spewing about. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the Four Seasons, uh, you know, landscaping company. Uh, but, but actual allegations to say, hey, there, yeah, there was something wrong. Uh, cause heretofore, all we've heard is, well, yeah, there, there was a ballot here that was smudged in this one here. Uh, not in the neighborhood of 17 or 18,000. And, and even the people in Pennsylvania, uh, told us last week that the number of ballots that have been sequestered are, uh, not significant, they say. Now, I don't know what that means, but I don't think it's going to be enough to turn the election over. Yes, there's many, many court cases. And by the way, the Democrats are also in court. Yeah. Uh, the um, <laughs> Trump's plan is to get as many cases as possible to prove the case, in his mind, to his people, uh, that it's an illegitimate count. But the one that matters to him is to get the Pennsylvania case to the Supreme Court where there's a chance if he can get it there. So this is, you know, this is, again, a Hail Mary, a faint hope. If he can get that particular case, uh, the Pennsylvania case, back before the court, that the court would take it up. And that's not a case of voter fraud. It's that the laws, as I understand it, just reading this, that the Pennsylvania law uh, is permitting votes to be counted that the Supreme Court would say no, they should not be counted. So that's different than a fraud case. So uh, what what all this suggests is that Donald Trump is going to try to make the case that if he's not elected, it's because it was stolen from him, so he's not actually going to lose. But his main purpose is to keep power. He ha- still has hopes, and we just heard this uh, uh, in the lead into this, uh, that you know he's now ordering basically the entire government, which he still controls, to not cooperate in the transition. So he can really slow down and muck up the transition. But there are particular dates, Bill. On um, December the 8th, uh, there's something called the safe haven. This is where the electors of the states uh, have to have the, the, the final chance of, of, of gathering all their stuff. You know, here's our, here's our decision on December 8th. We now render it. December 14th, the official count of the Electoral College happens. And then after that, uh, and remember, it's an Electoral College. The fact that, that uh, Biden has five or five and a half million more votes than Trump doesn't count in terms of popular vote. Mm-hmm. Then it goes on January 6th, uh, to officially to the brand new Congress, which takes office then, to officially certify. But until those steps are taken, particularly the, the uh, Electoral College count on December 14th, Donald Trump still is going to try to win this by other means. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, I find it ironic that he's, he's accusing Biden of stealing the election. I mean, that's essentially what he's trying to do here. And, uh, you know, Barr's uh, uh, miss of yesterday to ask a prosecuting attorneys uh, to start sniffing around and see what they can find, uh, even though there doesn't seem to be any proof of anything going on about any malfeasance. Uh, it just, I mean, we've, you and I have talked for some time about but the fact that Barr is really just his, his personal lawyer. He is not the Attorney General of the United States. He just does Trump's bidding in situations like this. But uh, the, the the cards seem to be stacked against the Democrats in a situation like this, but they had to see this coming. I, and I would think they've made some kind of a, a plan to be able to combat this. Yes, uh, this is a very good season for lawyers. Yeah. Uh, I, unfortunately, I chose to be a political scientist. But uh, yes, uh, the Democrats have gamed every one of these scenarios out, although I think I think the, the GSA's refusal to... <laughs> they, they, they might have missed a few uh, quirks in there, but... Uh, right now we have a situation where a key official has to certify the result of the election to release money uh, and also access to agencies to the winning candidate. Normally that's within 24 hours of the election being called. But uh, yes, the the uh, legal teams, it isn't only the Trump people who have lawyers. It's, uh, this is going to be uh, a, litigated, a litigated issue. I think there's other issues we should talk about uh, on, on the assumption that Biden wins. Uh, and that's, I think, a pretty good assumption that he's going to be the president. Uh, what does it mean, and what does it mean for Canada? What does it mean for the world? I think, the, in terms of Canadian, it matters in a variety of ways. The fact that there will now be somebody in the White House who believes in multilateralism, who believes in the rules-based order, 
who believes that America should not create a vacuum on the world stage, but should occupy the world stage. That has great, uh, great meaning for Canada. Among other things, yesterday was 700 days that the two Michaels have been held in Chinese prisons. Mm -hmm. And we will now have, you know, Canada's been doing its best to get international support. But, you know, without a, a world, <laughs> without the U.S. believing in multilateralism, well, now, now we're going to have a much stronger multilateral approach to all issues. And I was very struck by the fact that the very first phone call between uh, President-elect Joe Biden and any foreign leader was with, with, with Justin Trudeau. And one of the things they discussed among, you know, of all the long, laundry lists they could, the whole case of the two Michaels was raised right up front. Yeah. And uh, so that, that the main takeaway is that Canada will have somebody in the White House who will do whatever the White House can to restore um, I put it this way, that uh, with a colleague we talked about, Donald Trump engaged in a broad deconstruction of trust at home and abroad. Don't trust the press, don't trust the agencies, and uh, don't trust NATO, don't trust. So now we have Joe Biden's center task right now is the reconstruction of trust, and that will work to Canada's advantage. Well, especially in the international scene, too. I mean, yeah. Biden has a, has a history of that anyway, not just as vice president for eight years, but uh, also in the Foreign Relations Committee when he was in the Senate for many, many years, too. I mean, he knows many of these world leaders, and they know him. So I, I can see, you know, breathing new life into NATO, uh, and I can see an invigorated G7 now because of this. I mean, they, they used to tread on eggshells whenever Trump was around, and, and now they understand that they actually have an ally now. Yes, and I would, uh, one, one of my particular... Uh themes that I like to stress is Donald Trump was very um, destructive of the kinds of architecture that protects us all, uh, so that he pulled out of not only the Paris Accord, that's going to be re you know, in terms of climate, so the climate change and the whole climate portfolio is about to be transformed, and that certainly has implications for Canada. But beyond that, he also, uh, Donald Trump, uh, really weakened the architecture on, on nuclear safety that is protecting us from from uh, the outbreak of war and the outbreak of nuclear war and we have donald donald trump said you know i'm i'm pulling out of this treaty i'm pulling out of that treaty the next one the last remaining major one was something called the new start that's an agreement between russia and the u.s and he said i'm not sure i want to sign that one and now we have joe biden having that in his platform about the first thing he's going to do is sign that uh, extension for five years between Russia and the U.S. on nuclear uh, control, control of the nuclear uh, uh, missile material that's available. So I think all of these are signs of a much, as, as you were articulating, a much more reinvigorated America in all kinds of ways that matter for Canada. A lot of balls up in the air, though, uh, before we get to that point. Uh, and lots more to talk about, Elliot. Thank you so much, as always, for uh, jumping in with us today and giving your perspective. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. Take care. Elliot Tepper, of course, from Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, numbers are troubling for COVID-19 here in the province of Ontario. Just got the, the numbers for today. And again, there's another increase. And uh, I know the Premier is going to address that a little bit later on and talk about some of the, the possible uh, solutions to to what we're facing right now with the second phase but this is a two-pronged approach by the government of course the other is economic recovery and sustainability uh that we don't want to see fall off the plate either and uh, the program that the, the government is working on right now is called ontario made and uh it's uh got, actually got some pretty encouraging numbers and uh, to that point we wanted to bring the minister in charge onto the program to give us an update vic fideli is the minister of economic development job creation and trade here in the province of ontario and he joins us on the bill kelly show to talk about this mr minister good to have you back on the program well it's great to be here to talk about this exciting uh, program bill Let's let's talk a little bit about that, Vic. I know you know we had a discussion, a brief discussion uh, when this program was initiated, and uh, the numbers are pretty good here. I just had a quick overview, and I was talking with the the premier and the finance minister about this the other day, and this is one of the, the really good news stories about what's happening. It, it's, I know there's some troubling times with the virus, and and we're dealing with that, but uh, job creation and job retention was one of the key elements, wasn't it? Yes, uh, and this is what we're seeing today. If you actually look at the amount of people working in manufacturing right now this morning, there's more than 11,000 additional people in manufacturing than there were pre-COVID. 
than there were in February. So this is a truly one of the success stories that's uh, you know come out of all of the other issues. Uh, we see shoppers that are looking for made in Ontario products. They're supporting their local businesses, and that means supporting Ontario manufacturers through uh, through this Ontario Made program. I, I hear that anecdotally. Of course, we don't get out of the house much these days because of uh, you know the, living in uh, because of the virus. But uh, the people I've talked to anecdotally or through email or anything else, you're right. There's a, a real strong buy Ontario mindset here in the province now, isn't there? I mean, we saw the troubles that small businesses went through in the first part of this year, and and I think there's a real dedication here to say, look, we got to stand behind them. Yeah, there's lots of numbers here. So there are 200 retailers that are participating in the program. And there are 1,450 manufacturers who are. So I was in my home hardware on the weekend uh, buying some paint, and it was beauty tone paint, and there it is, the banners hanging, the Ontario made, that distinctive banner. Right on the paint cans is the Ontario made logo. Big smile comes over my face because today uh, there are 5,200 products from those uh, 1,450 manufacturers that you that are made in Ontario now that support that Ontario-made logo. Um, you know, you think about in uh, the Hamilton Steel City Sauce Company with uh, their, you know, their beautiful award-winning hot sauces, Viking Tears, the Reaper, Banshee. Uh, these are all uh, good quality products. They're, they're made right at Steel City Sauce with the, uh, with the Ontario Made logo. Armor Protective Packaging, um, Bella Biochar Corp uh, with their uh, products that they make there. Heddle Shipyards flies a big Ontario Made banner. Um, I know I, one of the first places I sent the big Ontario Made uh, decal was down to our friends at Heddle. Uh, so there's lots happening locally as well. Vic, what's the the mindset of, of those businesses? I mean, there's a lot of trepidation when, you know, we, we started to come out of phase one, uh, and uh, and some businesses were kind of looking and peering out to say, is this going to be okay? And they were concerned about that. And I know that your government uh, initiated a number of programs, including this one that we're just talking about here now. Is is there a sense of confidence now that, uh, that uh, we're not necessarily back all the way because the pandemic is still with us, but uh, that, that we're starting to get our feet under us again? Well, it started when the Premier was looking for personal protective equipment for our yeah. uh, frontline workers, and, you know, we were blocked from the States, and there was product that wouldn't come over from uh, Asia, and he said, you know, damn it, never again will we ever be caught short of our PPE, and so now here in Ontario, we make masks of every sort, we make gowns, we make face shields, we make ventilators, we make everything from the PPE except for gloves, and we're working on that. Um, but that spirit, that Ontario spirit, that moved on outside of PPE, where we're now making products that we haven't made in a, in a long time in Ontario. That, that, that resurgence has happened, and that's why there are so many uh, thousand mo- uh, thousands of more people who uh, are working in manufacturing. We're, 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 we've unleashed Ontario. I'm telling you, this is uh, exactly what we were hoping. And, and, and if I can, Bill, Thursday was a big day. I, if, you're in, if you're in business, you would have heard my speeches where I say that the business community is strong in Ontario because we, we reduced the cost of doing business in the last two years by $5 billion. It's a long story, what adds up to $5 billion, but that is just a, a, an absolute fact, including cutting WSIB rates almost by 50% without cutting any of the benefits to the, to the uh, workers. So th- there's a great story, but in the budget, we've now reduced the cost of energy for our industrial, Class A and Class B industrial, and we've reduced their their municipal taxes, the business share of the provincial municipal taxes. So now we're saving businesses about $7.5 billion a year. So we've just unleashed Ontario on the world. 
Well, and there's been a lot of good news, actually, and I think we need to accent that, too. And I know as, as, as the Minister for Economic Development, I mean, you, uh, this, this must have just made your day. First of all, the Ford plant was saved. We, that was a few weeks ago. We, we know what's going to be happening with that with electric cars. But great news about the GM plant uh, in Oshawa just the other day. As a matter of fact, you were just mentioned about the PPE, too, uh, Vic. Uh, that, that's what they're doing at that plant right now. Uh, they were making PPEs, but now they're going to have to charge it back over because you're going to start making uh, trucks there again, and uh, that's fabulous news for those communities. Well, add one more in there, the Fiat Chrysler deal. So yeah. you think about this, Bill. When on earth was the last time you ever heard $5 billion in brand-new auto plants announced in 30 days? Ford, Fiat Chrysler, and then GM. $5 billion. It's the because... Ontario has cut the cost of doing business. You know, back uh, in, in the previous government, I don't, I don't mean to sound political, but this is just a fact. The previous uh, chairman of Fiat Chrysler told uh, former Premier uh, Kathleen Wynne, you have made Ontario the most expensive jurisdiction in all of North America in which to do business. And Premier Ford, when elected, said, that's it. We're turning that back. We want manufacturing. We believe in the manufacturing sector. And that's why we began to trim all these costs, especially through red tape. And that's what's so appealing to these companies. $7 billion a year in savings, uh, they're a big part of it. Because we talk about, you know, the recovery and, 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 and the economic development part of it has to be something that, that has to really have some st- a strong foundation. And, and, and it looks like we're, we're getting that now with these new jobs and with the program that you've talked about. Uh, and and I've, I've seen this happen, and I know you've got examples of it too, you, just here in the Hamilton area, of a number of companies that have pivoted and, uh, you know, okay, things aren't going well with the, the first wave of the pandemic, but they started getting into the PPE business and, and supplying that, uh, which, as you say, is good news on two fronts. First of all, we've got enough supply here. We don't have to rely on, on stuff coming across the border anymore, but it's been an employer. I mean, the, you know, those are people that have been put back to work. Oh, absolutely. And and not only are they uh, manufacturing for here in Ontario, they're shipping coast to coast in Canada. And for many of them, uh, they're shipping worldwide. When the Premier and I were in, um, I think it was St. Catharines at one of the companies, there were crates of things on their way to New Zealand, to many of the U.S. states. You know, just we were just beaming uh, at the product coming out of uh, uh your neck of the woods that is being exported worldwide it's wonderfully exciting well it's it's a good news story and uh, boy we could use a little i know we're all getting a little stir crazy and cabin fever here because of what's going on and uh, that's going to be with us for at least uh, another few months anyway but uh, it's it's really encouraging i think for a lot of people to hear these stories about how the economy is starting to rebound uh, under very troubling times uh, and boy, when we, we get everybody moving in the right direction again and get to the a vaccination uh, program set up and everything like this, uh, I, you know, I guess the sky's the limit of what's happening with the Ontario economy. Well, you know, we've, we've always said we'll protect and create these good quality jobs. We're going to do that now and in the future. So we're training workers. Uh, we've addressed the uh, what we call the job killing electricity prices. We're targeting red tape and all of the regulations we're reducing their taxes uh, when and now with the uh, uh, announcement both provincially and federally we plan to connect every home business and farm in Ontario to broadband so again we, we are at the cusp here we are unleashing Ontario uh, and uh, we uh, the, the meetings that we hold uh, through teleconferencing but we hold them worldwide uh, they are loving the message coming out of Ontario. Vic, we'll stay in touch uh, and continue with the good news and continue good luck with you and your portfolio. There's uh, some great stuff coming out of there. Thanks, Bill, and thanks uh, to the people of Hamilton for the great work that they've done. Okay, Vic Fidelli, the Minister of Economic Development and Job Creation and Trade uh, here in the province of Ontario. And, yeah, you know, credit where it's due. I mean, these guys have, have really come to the fore and got a, a number of different initiatives going that are really starting to pay off. And, uh, boy, if we can just get the other side of it, the, the public health part of this back under control, uh, it's, it's going to be a great situation. But we're not there yet. Glad you're with us today. The Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL and 900 CHML. Uh, interesting story. The uh, Hamilton Board of Education is saying that parents should be prepared for school closures 
in case of COVID-19 cases rising. And, of course, that's been happening in London and in Hamilton for the last little while and uh, giving both public health departments uh, a pause for concern about whether or not uh, there could be more restrictions. Manny Figueroa is the Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Manny, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Uh, good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you could talk to us about this because I want to make a distinction here. I mean, the headline says that you've told parents or sent a letter out to parents to be prepared for this. This is not imminent, though, is it? No, it's not, Bill. I'm glad you're asking. Uh, Just setting context again, the province in the summer told all school boards uh, to prepare for all three scenarios. Um, And right now we're living two of those. We're living in elementary where all students can return, and we know a large number are choosing remote, and a hybrid model or adaptive, which our secondary students are coming on alternate days, half the cohort. The other scenario is that we need to be ready just in case to go full remote. So the reason our survey has gone out is the province has done a a survey to all school boards uh, over the last two weeks, you know, a check-in to see their readiness across the province and where they can support. So, we thought it was important for us uh, to reach out to our parents. We know we sort of have three groups. We know our 9,000-plus students in elementary remote. Well, they're ready because that's what they're living right now. Yeah. We know our secondary students, we deploy one-to-one devices in secondary, and because a, a large chunk of their learning is already remote. So we wanted to do an assessment of all our about 26,000 students who are still in person to see what parents may need. Do they have a device at home? Yes or no? Do they have internet connectivity? Yes or no? So we're ready. So that's the reason the survey is out right now. Manny, let me ask you something. And I know you're not into the politics of this, uh, but you know we've talked about this color coding system that the province has put in place right now. And uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the medical officer of health, has uh, raised some serious concerns about the rising number of new cases here in the Hamilton area. Uh, perhaps moving into orange, and they said, you know, if it continues uh, into red, does that impact the board's decision at all? Because I'm 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 looking at those numbers, which are, are very troubling, but at the same time, uh, in 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 your environment, in the school's environment, uh, both secondary and elementary school, uh, you seem to have everything under control. I mean, there have been some 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 cases certainly, but not to the extent that you see in the general public. No, I'm glad you raised that. Like, uh, just looking at today's data this morning. We've had about 55 positive cases in our schools, uh, and only uh, two of those cases um, with determined outbreak, that the link, the epidemiological link, with two staff people that might have gone at the school. But what we're seeing out of the, you know, the, um, you know, 26,000 students in elementary and the, and the uh, about 14,000 showing up in secondary, plus our over 7,000 staff, permanent and temporary, 55 cases. I would say that our, our, some of our safest places to be, Bill, is in our schools because people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. First of all, they have symptoms. They're doing their self-screening and not coming. And if they are, the mask wearing, the handing a wash, and really working on the distancing. Uh, I know it's hard, um, but when I think about the numbers and, and um, people who are really concerned, i got to give kudos to all our staff and our parents were really working hard um, because um, they're doing the daily things they need to. And when, and when we do have the case, I, I got to give hats off to public health. And uh, part of my learning was the importance of contact tracing. I don't know how we would have continued to stay open or even open, Bill, if we didn't have the additional 23 public health nurses funded for our region. Because when we do have a case, the intensity of that work to get the data from our school leaders, principals, class lists, seating plans, bus schedules, supervision schedules, the intensity of, of the 24 hours getting a hold of staff uh, and students and parents to do that contact tracing, that has been a key to our success. The measures in schools, but then the contact tracing has been pretty intense, and I don't, and we, so my my shout out there to the province and I want to thank them is continue to fund that if schools are going to be open we need the support of our public health nurses uh, around COVID 
But Manny, there's a message here, and, and you're part of a good message here. Uh, if you play by the rules and follow the, the protocols for COVID-19 as set out by public health, and that's what you guys are doing at the board with all of your schools, uh, you can't pers- necessarily eliminate it, but you can certainly reduce uh, the risk to students and to teachers in situations like that. And, and we've seen this happen. I mean, you know, because you and I talked about this back in September when the school year started, there was a lot of trepidation. Oh, my, what's this going to do? Are we going to see huge spikes? Not in schools. I mean, you know, the, the, the number, and Dr. Richardson said this, I mean, the, the, the see, increase we've seen here is basically private gatherings for people that aren't following the rules. They, you know, they're, they're not social distancing. They're gathering in too many places or they're not wearing personal protective equipment. You're doing all of that stuff, and you're seeing a very positive result as, because of that. Uh, listen, Bill, you're correct. We meet every, I personally meet, uh, and also my counterpart, the captive board, we meet every Friday morning with the leadership team from public health to review the trends in, uh, in the city, um, to see where the outbreaks are, the areas in the city, and what messaging do we need to continue to reiterate? Uh, what do we need to continue to reinforce? Because we know that uh, people get complacent. Um, so, you know, so those learnings we have to continue to respond to. And to your first question around the remote piece, and when we do have to, unfortunately, close a classroom, we've not had to close a school uh, to date, and I hope we will not have to. But when we do have to close a classroom, the remote piece uh, is an expectation. So um, if a student or entire class has to be uh, uh, at home for 14 days uh, with the teacher, then we do transition to remote learning. Uh, it sometimes takes us 24 hours to get, uh, or 40 hours to get everyone on board, but we do transition already in those cases where students do uh, go home. But you're right, we have to stay on top of this and, and the impact. Like I heard you just, you know, you had a different speaker here around the impact on the economy. Yeah. Keeping schools open, to me, is an essential service that, um, and when you're seeing in different jurisdictions across the world, when they have to sort of go to a different color or a different type of uh, measure to lock down, what you're seeing is that schools are remaining open. And, uh, and I think that's vital for us because the impact on families who are working and if, and, and if they don't have an alternate solution, uh, the ripple effect of families is, is devastating. So we've got to stay on top of this. And I know we can do it. And I... Um, and I know our staff, they have been, and I, and I really want to thank our, our, our school principals to our leaders, is when there is a case, um, um, Bill, the intensity of the contact tracing and the number of meetings we have, whether it's, it's the call comes at Sunday at 10 p.m. for the public health gets the results, or whether that's Friday night, people are responding um, because that response time is key to keep our school safe. Manny, we'll stay in touch as this uh, rolls out. Uh, continued good luck with what you're doing. Thanks for this today. Thank you, Bill. Manny Figueroa, Director of Education for the Hamilton Board of Education. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.